I miss you all. Uh, I'm thankful for the handful of people that are in here for production purposes. But you, the people of God, the body of Christ, are a means of grace to me. And I miss you. I wish I look forward to the day when we can have lots of people in this room lifting up the name of Jesus, uh, worshiping together, and uh, just, you know, we need each other. We really do. So, let me, um, let me pray, and then we're going to get right into it. Father, we thank you for the Word of God. We thank you so much that you have revealed so much to us about your character and your goodness, and, and we pray that you'd give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is written... For the sake of the church, going through tough times, and it opens the curtain so that you can see something of what's going on in heaven as God's plan for restoration for his people, for his world, unfolds. And so when we look at Revelation, the big thing I think we ought to be feeling is, thank you, Jesus, that you have a plan, that you know what's going on, and you've got the steering wheel. And so the book of Revelation begins with a vision of Jesus and then letters not to the rulers of nations, letters not to the celebrities, letters not to the philosophers and the movers and shakers of this age, but letters to the churches. And I think that says something about how Jesus feels about his church. It says something about the importance of this thing called church that you and I are part of. The church is the body of Christ and mystical union with Christ. Mystical union simply means that we are one and you can't put your finger on what it is that actually makes us one, but we are truly one. That uh, we are the earthly expression of the kingdom of God. This is no social club we put together for the sake of our own members. It's the bride of Christ, the hands and feet of Christ, the body of Christ, and the way that Jesus spreads his kingdom all over the world, and there's no backup plan. The church is in. So the first, the first communication that Jesus Christ has is for the churches. And every expression of the church has its own context, You've got churches in peacetime, and you've got urban churches, and you've got country churches, and you've got churches that are facing persecution. Many places around the world today, following Jesus is illegal. And our people are kicked out of their families, considered dead. Some of our people are tortured and killed for their faithfulness to Jesus. And that is the case with the church that Jesus is talking to today, the church in Smyrna. If you've got a Bible, open it to Revelation chapter 2, and we'll start with verse 8. And if you'd like, if you, if you just please stand together to acknowledge uh, our respect for the word of God. And Jesus says, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, 
the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The word of God may be seated. The church that Jesus spoke to. Let's talk a little bit about what's happening in Smyrna. I've been living in Smyrna for the last three weeks. Not Smyrna, Georgia. Uh, I I think there's one in New Jersey, right? Uh, But Smyrna, and actually it is Izmir in Turkey nowadays. But uh, in fact, all of these churches, all seven of these churches are located in what we now call Turkey. Smyrna was the Roman city that did it right. They had temples built to all the Roman gods, and they even enforced Caesar worship. That's where you have to go through this little ceremony, if you want to live, and you have to say, Caesar is Lord. Well, Christians won't do that. And the Jewish folk um, were such a, um, a, a, they were a big population and they were exempt because they cut a deal with the, Roman, with the Roman government to keep the peace in Rome. So they were interested in favors from the Roman government, so they kept ratting out the Christians and getting them in trouble with the Roman government. And they were poor in a rich city, mainly because they, the, they couldn't get the jobs. Who would hire such troublemakers as the followers of Jesus? And the word for poor here, when Jesus says, I know your poverty... It's not just, I'm kind of broke this week, but I'm getting a paycheck next. It's really poor, hungry poor, abject poor. So the church in Smyrna is poor and persecuted, and there's more persecution to come, and some are going to be thrown into prison, and some are going to die for Jesus. And that's the situation that Jesus is speaking into, and he's right there with them. He is right there with them. He is walking among the candlesticks. He's walking among the churches and he will never leave us and he'll never forsake us. And he introduces himself as the writer of the letter as the first and the last, borrowing the words that the Holy Spirit penned through the prophet Isaiah back in the 44th chapter. He says, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. And later on in the book of Revelation, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's like the A and the Z. The first and the last, the beginning and the end. The point is that Jesus is Almighty God. And it is Jesus who is before all things and he wraps up all things, but he has a plan for the meantime. And you can trust him. And then he says, I was dead and then came to life. Jesus has died for all the sins of his people, including you who believe. And he has come back to life. It says in 1 Peter, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. 
And Jesus is saying, those of you who are dying for me need to be reminded that I died for you. And that I didn't stay under the power of death. I rose again, you will rise again. I live, you will live. Because Christ has risen, you will rise. So Jesus comes to them and he has this to say to a hurting church. I know what you're going through. Now Jesus is not that guy that engages in conversation with somebody who has gone through a severe family tragedy. And that guy says, yeah, I know what you mean. I had a flat tire in the rain. No, he's not that guy. Jesus does, in fact, know. He knows what they are going through. He knows what it's like to be abused and persecuted. Jesus knows what it's like to be hungry and tired and rejected by friends and bullied. He knows what it's like to be betrayed by friends, tempted to sin, and though he never sinned. And no matter what you're going through, Jesus knows what it's like because he's been there. He truly has. And another reason he says he knows their tribulation is because, remember I said that we have a mystical union with Jesus Christ? There was a time when Saul of Tarsus was persecuting the church and he was on his way to Damascus and on the road, Jesus stops him. The resurrected, glorified Jesus stops Saul and he says this, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute them? He says, why do you persecute me? He is bound up with his church, so that when his church goes through a bad time, Jesus is going through a bad time. And Jesus never gets me time and checks out. Jesus is our high priest who always is making intercession for us, always praying for us, always pleading the merit of his own righteousness, pleading the power of his own blood daily on your behalf. There's an old hymn, there's not a friend, there's, there is not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. There is not a friend like Jesus. And he says, I know your poverty, but you were rich. You know, they couldn't get jobs, they couldn't join guilds, their job opportunities were unjustly taken from them, and they couldn't buy food. But Jesus says, you are rich in my eyes. You are really what Jesus says you are. The Laodiceans, one of the other churches, I think the seventh one that we'll talk about in this series, spoiler alert, thought that they were rich. And Jesus says, you think you're rich, but you're really poor and blind and miserable and naked. And the Smyrna church saying, we're poor. And Jesus says, you're rich. You are what Jesus says you are not what society tells you you are. You know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that you might become rich in him. And then he says, I know what's behind what you're going through. Behind the Romans are these particular Jewish people, not real Jews, according to, to the Bible. Romans chapter 2 says the real Jew is someone who is a Jew inside. 
But these were in name only. And keep in mind, this is not anti-Semitism talking. This is, this is the Jewish Messiah talking to a Jewish apostle about a church that he loves who was started by Jewish people who received Jesus as the king of the Jews. And everything we enjoy in Christ comes to us through the Jewish people. That's why we left all of this stuff up. That's why it still says, Shema Israel. That's why it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. The Lord is my light and my salvation, and the Ten Commandments are all here. That's why we left all this stuff up, is because everything we experience in Jesus comes to us through the Jewish people. But he says these are not real Jews. And this this particular brand of false Jewish community had traded in their birthright for political power. Just like Esau traded in his birthright for a bowl of stew. And they were ratting out the church in order to stay cool with the Romans. Behind the false Jewish community, though, was the real enemy of the people of God. Who is my enemy? Big question. It's easy to go wrong here. If you've got a bad marriage, it's your partner. It's your spouse. That's who's your enemy, right? If you, if you, think, you think that's your real enemy. Um, if you have trouble at work, it must be your boss. If you're into politics, it's the other party. But Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Your enemy is Satan, the prince of the powers of darkness, the accuser of the brethren, the author of evil, the ancient serpent of Eden, the great enemy of God, of Christ, and of his people, full of cunning and malice. He hates you, and he has a horrible plan for your life. He is real, and he is personal. He's smart, and he's powerful. But the Bible says, greater is he, the Holy Spirit, who is in you than he who is in the world. Satan loves to attack the kingdom of God and get in whatever digs he can. He wants wants to see the church get tired and discouraged and demoralized and sidetracked on trivialities centered on anything but Jesus. He wants to see the church people feeling completely alone and without community. He wants to see God's people burn out. He wants to see churches destroyed by the power of gossip or limp along as a powerless institution. And even though he should know better, he tries to destroy the church by persecution and the church only gets stronger. Jesus is telling the Smyrna church, you are under attack. And I know who it is. It is the devil. It is hard to tell sometimes if you're under attack because life is hard. Sometimes without the devil's involvement. But what's going on behind the scenes? Here's an example. Some of you have read the book of Job. And it all started the conversation with God and the devil. And if anybody was under attack by Satan, it was Job. But he never knew it was a satanic attack. God did not think it was important to reveal it to Job. But he revealed it to us so many years later. What Job did know was that God allowed it and could have prevented it. But he praised God as sovereign. Satan can do only what God lets him do. When Jesus said to Peter before his crucifixion, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. And when you are restored, strengthen your brothers. Satan had to ask. He always has to ask. Nothing God never gives Satan a free, uh, what's the word, carte blanche. God limits Satan 
God is sovereign over Satan, and he has, and Satan has to ask God's permission. Because behind the devil, you know, behind, behind the Romans are the, are, 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 the, are the fake Jews. Behind the fake Jews is the devil. Behind the devil, Jesus is the king who rules over all and will take the worst of Satan's attacks and turn them into hardships that are going to make you holy, that are going to make you Christ-centered and Christ-desiring, a church that represents the kingdom of heaven. He will do that for you personally, too, if you are personally under attack. The Bible says, endure hardship. As discipline. You ever wonder why Jesus has nothing bad to say to the Smyrna church? But out of five out of seven churches, Jesus says, I have this against you. I've got issues with you. But he didn't have any issues with the Smyrna church. Is it because everybody was, was pretty, you know, was so good? Uh, that all the, all the people, all the church people in Smyrna were holy and, and they were righteous and they never sinned? I don't think that's it. Is it because that they were having such a hard time, Jesus didn't want to make them feel bad by telling them anything negative? I don't think that's it either. It's because of discipline. They were already being disciplined by their hardship. They did not need a word of corrective discipline from Jesus. You look at verse 10. It says that you may be tested. What does that mean? It's discipline. There are two kinds of discipline. Developmental discipline. That's where you practice the guitar to get better. That's where you pump iron at the gym to get stronger. You read your Bible to become a more knowledgeable disciple and follower of Jesus. That's developmental discipline. And then there's corrective discipline. That's when you have to sit in the corner from Alvin off at your mom. Uh, Jesus has corrective words for five out of seven churches. But for Smyrna, what Satan meant for evil, God redeemed and used for the good of his people. There's this beautiful passage in 1 Peter. 1 Peter is written also to a persecuted church, and it's difficult to understand outside of the context of persecution. Peter says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith which is more precious than gold, that perishes though tested by fire, may be found result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The same goes for you. Endure hardship as discipline. Allow hardship to develop your faith. I remember, I remember the, the five hardest years of my life were just before coming back up here to Philadelphia. I remember feeling, I don't think I've ever before experienced such a desire for God and such a satisfaction in God. And I've never meditated on his faithfulness and his goodness as much as I did in those five years. 
that were so they were hard on my family, hard on me as a pastor, and and then I began to to quit. You, you know, things like this begin to, to to make you quit holding on to the things of this world. You let go of your demands for comfort. You begin to trust more and more in that inheritance, which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Whatever hardship you have been enduring, open up your heart for the work of God to refine your faith like gold refined in the fire. Let it make you someone who is more effective in the hands of God. Somebody who can, with more of a deep, personal, robust relationship with Jesus Christ, proclaim his goodness to a hurting world. And then Jesus calls us to be faithful. He says, be faithful even unto death. First, he says, do not fear. Do not fear because I will not let anything bad happen to you. Is that what it says? No, thank you. I'm glad you're awake. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. The devil, regulated by God, will throw some of you into prison, which is basically a waiting room for execution at that time. What does it mean to be faithful? You start by trusting God's heart for you. That God is good. He's good to me. All the time he's good. And he is not neglecting me. Decide before the tests come your way, and tests may come our way. We don't know how long this window of peace in the United States is going to last. We don't know. We don't know how long we will be able to openly worship Jesus, openly talk about Jesus on Facebook. We don't know. We really don't know. It's a gift for now to steward with, uh, with wisdom. But all I do know that all around the world, our people are really getting um, harsh, harsh treatment. Many from their government and many from their families. Decide before the tests come your way that Jesus is more precious to you than having friends, more precious to you than your stuff, more precious to you than your economics, even more precious to you than your family. More precious to you than survival. There was a disciple of John, John, the one who was receiving this letter and writing it down for Jesus, who was named Polycarp. He was one of the ancient church fathers. He himself was a disciple of John the Apostle. When he got into trouble, because he lived in Smyrna, he was a pastor in Smyrna. And when he got into trouble, the guard said, look, I really like you. And we can make this real simple. Can you please just say the words, Caesar is Lord? Come on. How hard can it be? Just do it. I won't even tell anybody you said it. I want to keep you alive. Come on. I'm trying to help you out here. Just say it. Just say it. Just say it. Jesus, uh, Caesar is Lord. Polycarp said, for 86 years, I have served Jesus Christ, and he has never once done me wrong. How can I 
deny my King and my Savior. You threaten me with fire that lasts for a moment, but you are ignoring the fire that lasts for eternity. Decide before the tests come your way that Jesus is more precious to you than everything else. And then answer this question for yourself. What does Jesus and his gospel really mean to me? Where would I be, like that old song, where would I be if Jesus didn't love me? Where would I be if Jesus didn't care? Where would I be if Jesus didn't sacrifice his life? But oh, I'm so glad that he did. Answer that question. What does Jesus mean to me? What does the gospel really mean to me? And then also, you may not be going through persecution or pain at this moment, but enter into the pain of the persecuted church worldwide. Enter in, learn what's going on, and pray for your brothers and sisters in North Sudan and North Korea and, and in China and remind you, and in other places, many, many other places. Remind yourself that you are the one uh, that, that, that you are one with the church around the world, and much of it is persecuted. We are one together. But Jesus also says he wants the Smyrna church to know it's going to be glorious at the end for you. It's going to be glorious for you at the end. He says, verse 11, he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, and I would add who don't repent, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. He says, you're not going to be hurt at all by the second death. You're born twice, you die once. You're born only once, you die twice. You must be born again, says Jesus. If you are saved, then you have become an overcomer. But because your overcoming is in Christ who has overcome death and hell and the devil forever. But if you are a martyr, that word overcomer means even more. It becomes even more precious for you having endured hardship for the sake of Jesus. And he says, those of you who are faithful even unto death, I will give you the crown of life. And there are two words for crown in Greek. One is the kind the kings wear, and the other is the kind the athlete gets after winning a contest. And that's the one he's talking about here. It's a garland that they place on a winning athlete, the one who has won the race. And, and, and he says, I will give you the crown of life, this garland for the winner of the race. Here's the real treasure. I cannot think of anything more soul-thrilling than for Jesus himself, the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who died for me and rose again, my Savior, shepherd, prophet, priest, and king with his own hands, placing a crown of life on our heads. That's what he promises, that Jesus, the honorable one beyond all dishonor, will honor you. I wouldn't believe it if I didn't read it with my own eyes. So live 
for the praise and the affirmation of your Savior. Live for the praise and the affirmation of your Savior. Musicians, come back up. Come on, let's pray together as we, uh, as we look at this. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, considering who you are, considering the God of glory who has raised Jesus Christ from the dead, and that same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is at work in our mortal bodies, changing us and making us more like Jesus, considering all that you are as holy, 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 and the King of all glory, It's not a big ask that we give up our lives for you. Lord, I pray that we truly would be prepared to give our lives for you should that question ever come up. That we would find in you the true treasure of heaven and earth. That we find in you all satisfaction the glorious one, the life-sustaining one, the life and soul-filling one. May our souls be thrilled with all that you are to us in Christ Jesus. And may we desire nothing less than the God who has revealed himself in Scripture, who promises to give us a crown of life for all who are faithful to the end, even unto death. O Lord, raise our vision to see you high and lifted up, glorious and enthroned, the King above all kings, and let us live our lives. Let us live our lives for the praise of Jesus. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. 